Good evening, everyone, and welcome back to 2021 Agile London. Um, we haven't wasted any time, as you can see, six of the month, um, which was absolutely perfect for our next uh, and third Super Six. Um, so thank you to everyone for joining us this evening. I hope you all, um, you know, given the circumstances, had a lovely Christmas and New Year. Um, I know things are difficult and challenging out there for us all at the moment, but I, you know, I sincerely hope you managed to um, enjoy it where you could. Um, just a couple of house rules, uh, and as I sort of say each week, um, these sound a bit like a broken record, but if I could ask all of you to remain on mute throughout this session, um, it really does allow our speakers to have a completely sort of clear audio channel to deliver their talks, which is what we're all here to uh, listen to this evening. Um, and we, because it's a super six and there's six speakers this evening, and it is a rapid fire, quick fire event, we don't do Q&A at the end of these sessions. What I actively encourage though is, you know, feel free to be active in the chat during the session um, uh, down at the bottom of your screen. The whole event is recorded, but then I do encourage you to sort of connect and link it and link in to our speakers and with each other to continue further talks that way. As you know, I really encourage um, questions on a normal Agile London, but as this is the rapid fire Super Six event, which is six speakers at six o'clock on the sixth of the month, um, you know, it could be quite or not that time effective towards the end of the session if we have um, questions to all speakers. So I'm going to kick us off um, tonight. As I say, it's six speakers. I've got, well, we have Amy Thompson, Christopher Bramley, Lizzie Morris, Colin Deedy, Gwenno Hathews and Shane Hasty. And we're actually talking from all across the UK this evening, from Texas and from New Zealand. So um, we are really stretching uh, the ability of the digital age here at uh, Agile London. So um, big kudos to us out there. <laughs> So I'm going to pass you straight over to Amy Thompson. As I say, these speakers this evening have 10 minutes each to speak. And the theme of the evening is innovation, which, as I'm sure we can all agree, in many parts of our life is probably pretty poignant at the moment. So, Amy, over to you. Just trying to make myself look a bit lighter. Um, it's really dark in here. Um, yeah, I'm really excited about today's talk, Alex. Um, and when you said that the theme was going to be innovation, um, I agree with you. I think there's so many amazing things that we can talk about. Um, and today I'm going to talk about data-driven development. So uh, if I just get my screen share on again, <laughs> hopefully with less trouble than last time. Um, okay, so can everyone see that okay? Where's you here? Uh, going to go into my presenter mode. Right here. <clears throat> yeah, so the reason I've chosen this talk is because um, I don't think that people talk about data-driven development enough. And um, I don't think product development features data-driven approaches enough. Um, and it really, it's about having the confidence to build the right products because it is possible to um, be agile and work in an agile environment and have agile methodologies, yet still build the wrong product. Okay, so 
Um, this really is about making sure that you're always getting the data that you need to provide the correct steer to continue to ask the right questions to your customers. Because if you're not asking the right questions, then how do you know that you're coming up with the right answers? Um, there's a couple of um, definitions around on what data-driven de development actually is. This was one that I just found online that I quite liked. Uh, for you guys to have a look at but basically what we're trying to do is find the, the correct data to make sure that we're going in the correct direction with a product or a feature that we're developing and that can be applied to a new feature a new product a new idea or it can apply to an existing product that you have because what you might have launched in the beginning might have been very successful but yet it might continue that it it doesn't it doesn't sell um, as well, and you want to know the reasons why that is. So it's about continually uh, testing whether you're still providing value to your customer. Okay. So I don't know how many of you will be familiar with this, and it's something that I came across quite recently. The conversion tunnel is basically about trying to uh, understand the user journey of a customer and how they go from um, the beginning of the journey to the end of the journey and the end of the journey, hopefully ending in a desirable outcome for the organization, such as a sale or even providing data to them. Um, but it's, uh, it's really interesting in terms of uh, understanding this funnel um, because we, we need to be mindful of it when we're developing our product, right? And we need to be thinking about, you know, these items on the right, um getting data on these particular areas so that we can we can tell where our customers are coming into our website leaving our website etc etc um <clears throat> so it's worth talking about the fact that it's great to get data we love data but it must be useful there's no point in um building um insights if the insights are in the wrong areas and they're not actually giving us what we call actionable metrics um, from various experiments. Um, so actionable metrics is a, a term from the Lean Startup. In fact, a lot of this talk today has come just from the Lean Startup by Eric Rice. Fantastic book, by the way, you have to read it. Um, but we need to have actual metrics to make sure that we are sure that we can take action from them. So we get the data and we, we understand what, what the data is telling us so that we can then either decide to what we call pivot. Uh, you know, we, we've, we need to go in another direction with our product or we persevere. So we think, yeah, we're heading in the right, right direction. We need to keep going. Now, there's many different ways to obtain data and there's many different ways to um, conduct an experiment and experimental design is very important for you know providing either a qualitative or quantitative result for you and you decide at which is the correct um, approach for you at any given time you don't have to keep the same experimental design throughout your entire product development and that's that's the that's the great thing about experimentation and the empirical uh, element of it is about trying a new experiment that might work better for you and provide a better result for you. Um, a couple of the examples that I've provided here, um, A, B or split testing, it's basically where you've got two different versions of your product or feature for a customer and you show the, the control, which is your current um, your current website or current product, and then you, you show them the, the new improved 
uh, product or feature to your sample and you see which has the, the most desirable outcome that you're looking for at the time, such as a result in a sale or a click through or something like that. Um, and there's also hypothesis testing, which is where you, you basically develop a hypothesis and you test it. So you say something along the lines of, well, we think that if this feature um, <clears throat> is created, then the result will be something else. And you, you go and you try and find ways to test that hypothesis, either by surveys or, you know, just chatting to customers or, you know, basically analyzing their behavior on a website, for example. And I've also gotten here. MVPE, which is obviously the minimal viable product, but the experimental version, because it would be so amazing if we could start thinking of a backlog as um, a backlog of experiments. You know, features need to be experiments, really, because um, they're not actually a proper feature until we've proved that it is actually adding value to a customer, right? So if we start thinking along those lines in terms of our product backlog, I think that would be an amazing thing to do. Um, experiments don't have to be expensive or lengthy, you know, you can, you can conduct them to be just enough to give you the, the information that you, you want at any given time, just to make sure that even the next sprint might be something that you want to, want to go ahead with. Um, so I think when we start talking about experiments, we can be sometimes put off by the fact that it does sound very scientific and, and it can be but i don't want people to feel that it's it's going to be something that you can't do because it's going to be too hard or too you know too much will be involved because that's not the case at all you design your experiments to give you the right results and you can make it as complex or as simple as as you want um so i also put at the bottom that instead of writing documentation um about a feature and we all know how waterfall projects love doing that. Um, instead of doing that, how about you use the time instead to conduct useful experiments so that you know that the end result will be something that is going to be saleable and valuable to a customer, right? Um, I want to talk about vanity metrics. Again, another term from the Lean Startup, but it's, it's you know, <laughs> there's no point in having data if you are analyzing data to make you feel good that you know you want to convince yourself that this product is adding value to a customer when in reality it's just not so you might have metrics to say that your sales are improving that would be a great metric to have but if it's if if it's hiding the fact that each transactional value has decreased uh, you know every week for the last six months then yes you still you still might be increasing your sales you still are selling but your value transactional value is decreasing then obviously that's data and a metric that is completely pointless and it's not providing the picture of what you need to observe in order to do something about it you know you can still go to your board members and say yes we're still improving and yes our product is still selling but actually sales are slowing down so you need to do something about that um, so vanity metrics glorify data in all the wrong ways. So it's important that when you're dealing with data to make sure that the metrics that you're actually gaining are still providing the correct data for you at any given time. Um, so a little bit more about the, the experimental process then. Um, again, this is from the Lean Startup and it's the build, measure, learn feedback loop where basically what we're trying to do is we're trying to understand whether our idea has any legs. 
So you have an idea and you build something really simple. Uh, it could just be even a piece of paper that you show in front of a customer and say, what do you think of this? It doesn't have to be something complex. It, it can be like a little website or whatever, but as long as it's something that a customer can feed back on, um, on your product or your idea, then you can measure what their behaviors or their thoughts or feelings are about your product. And then you can get that data, process it and learn from it. It's what we call validated learning in lean um, startup principles, because we want our learning to give us an insight. We want our learning to then be something that we can go off and action <laughs> so that we can then continue to build our product in the correct way. Um, the value and growth hypothesis are something, again, that we don't talk about enough. And basically, the value hypothesis is talking about whether a product or service really delivers value to customers once they're using it. And the growth hypothesis is about whether customers will be able to discover your product. So there's no point in building a product that's great um, and early adopters love it. But then how does the rest of the population get to see it? You know, if it's only adding value to a small percentage of your customer um, base, that's, you know, that's no good either. So those are the two things that you really need to be thinking at the heart of your product development um, journey. I just provided an example of hypothesis testing here and I'm conscious of the time here, Alex, so I'm going to try and hurry this along now. <laughs> um, but, you know, this is basically how you would conduct a hypothesis uh, experiment where you, you've got your product you feature and you, you want to ask your customers um, or find some information from your customers regarding this particular hypothesis here. Um, a great thing to do would be like have that backlog um, of your experiments and this is your validated learning board like a Kanban board where any experiment has been conducted and then got validated so that you know that experiment one is worth pursuing we've we've got there and we've we've got some information we've got some data and therefore we're going to develop our backlog as a result of that learning and i'm just going to close with this post agile manifesto manifesto from agilevelocity.com um, and i hope i wonder if mike hall is on the call today from texas i was wondering if that's him um, but they came up with this really great um, sort of little manifesto here that is based on data-driven or experimental driven development um, and I really loved it, so I had to include it on this. Um, so we value validated learning over seemingly reasonable assumptions, okay? Uh, Data-driven decisions over plausible sounding arguments, building minimum learning products over additional features and the courage to build the right thing over something that just works, right? So you can have a great thing that works, but if it's not actually going to be something useful, what's the point? Um, so yeah, that's, uh, that's my talk done i hope you enjoyed it i really enjoyed um putting it together um so are we doing questions at the end alex or we, when when's questions come <laughs> uh, <laughs> amy great talk it was 11 minutes um so you owe me a minute thank you very much that was superb um so i just mentioned at the beginning of the call there we don't do questions on the super six because it can then um, be Sort of can't be that time efficient, but what I will do is anyone who wants to continue talks with Amy, I'm sure she'll be happy to connect and uh, link in with you. Um, okay, so thank you, Amy. I'm going to hand over straight away to Christopher Bramley. Christopher, over to you. Ah, thanks. So, hi. Um, 
I thought for for what I was going to talk about, I would kind of talk go back to simplicity a bit and talk a little bit about innovating ideas about innovation. I think especially in times of crisis where we are, for example, at the moment, I think it's it's a good idea to kind of talk about um, you know the concept of innovation, which along with that, while a lot of other things have lost their way, I think someone's mic might be broadcasting at the moment. So. Yeah, just trying to sort that. Can I just quickly jump in and ask everyone yeah, to sure. remain on mute? Thank you very much. No problem. So um, I come from, uh, you know, and I work with companies from a background of frameworks and complexity and learning. Those are kind of my three things. So one of the things I wanted to share, and we'll see if it works, huh, it may or may not, um, is something that I've worked on recently with Cognitive Edge, who created um, Kinevin. Hopefully you can all... Uh, hopefully you can all see that. Um, and essentially the idea behind um, complexity theory is that there are domains where um, we all make decisions, right? And this is very important for uh, things like innovation. So there, there are certain heuristics that you can apply to innovation and innovative ideas, okay? So, you know, many disruptors are innovators, but not necessarily the reverse. Not, not all um, innovators are disruptors. You know, right now, when we need it the most, I think people and organizations, they, they're innovating less than they should be. Um, and this is partly to do with, you know, a very human response to pulling back into comfort zones and, and kind of battening down the hatches and not wanting to spend money because we're very uncertain. I did a talk at Agile Tour London recently on uncertainty. Um, and so, um, you know, we're, we're seeing quite a lot of that. Um, and we're also seeing kind of, a, and we were seeing this before the pandemic, there's been a bit of a dearth of, of the kind of understanding the jump in gap from make to sell to, um, sorry, sell to make to, to, you know, make to sell. So let's, I, I thought I'd go back and look at the traditional kind of idea of, of innovation, and then I'll have a look at where it fits into complexity here. So traditionally, a lot of people look at innovation in three, in three forms. We've got like an incremental innovation, um, a definitive innovation and a breakthrough innovation. Th these are terms that people often think of. But when you actually fit it into the domains that we have within complexity, which are clear or very obvious, complicated or expertise driven, complex or uh, unknown or emergent, or however you want to put it, multiple pathways, multiple goals, or chaotic, where everything is just you know all over the place, um, you can actually see that, that there's a slightly different fit to it. So the, the clear domain would have your incremental innovation, your very small bits and pieces that you add on to a product that you already have. Um, complexity would, um, sorry, uh, complication would have the definitive. So you'd have kind of leaps, but it's still in a very ordered and linear fashion. And then you've got complexity, which has the radical innovations, right? This is where what Amy was saying about experimentation, probing can take place here, where you can find and manage serendipity if you're, if you're quite lucky. Um, and then of course, chaos is where you get disruptive innovation. It's kind of a last chance. You throw what you've got at the wall to try and make things work. But if you find something new that's amazing, it's fantastic, right? You, you do a really good job with it. Um, so this can actually be linked, and I'm not going to show pictures of it now, but you're welcome to talk to me about this afterwards if you want. And um, this is where you can link things like the Gartner hype cycle and S-curves um, along with it. So you've got basically orthodoxies for what people look at as wanting to see in the marketplace. And it doesn't really matter which industry you're in because innovation can happen anywhere. Um, when you link these S-curves and they kind of link up into this 
um, orthodoxy crossover, you actually get uh, this area where as you come up to the top of it, the old is suppressing the new once you've got the hype out of the way. So I'm sure a lot of you are familiar with Moore's chasm in the market life cycle, but this is where the sell to make and the make to sell are very difficult to, to get across. So getting across that chasm is very difficult. Most companies fail to do so, in fact. And if you look at Kickstarter as a really good example of innovation, where we tend to think of it, I think it's about 36% of projects get funded. And of those 36%, a very, very, very small percentage actually cause more than a blip or sustainably work, right? So it's not as easy to get across there as you, you know, you might think, but if you do manage to flip an orthodoxy and that's where disruption comes in, because it's not the same as innovation, you can innovate with a new product, but innovation isn't just novelty. It has to be applicable. And again, this kind of talks a little bit into what Amy was just talking about. It needs to be applicable. It can't just be new. Now, disruption is something different. Very good example here is Apple um, and iOS. Apple came out with basically the first um, smartphone about a year after its release. It became kind of a smartphone, the iPhone. Um, but Android holds 70 percent of the, um, the OS market for smartphones. And if you look, Apple is the third largest producer of smartphones in the world with Samsung and then Huawei, I believe, is number two. So. What happened there was although Apple did the innovation, you actually had a disruption of the market which came in from Android by them delivering Apple-like capabilities to people who couldn't afford iPhones, right? And it flipped the orthodoxy. This happened with IBM who were hardware and it flipped to software with Microsoft and then it flipped to Apple with objects of material desire which were hardware and software which enhanced your image and so on and so forth. So these you know, happen quite a lot in, in innovation cycles. And I think that that's kind of very interesting to look at. So what do we need for innovation then? Well, there are two things that I think that we need. And again, it kind of just, you know, as I was listening to Amy, it was interesting listening to the hypothesis scenario because not all innovation comes out of hypothesis, not all um, exploration comes out of that. You have nil hypothesis scenarios as well, which is what we call abductive reasoning which a lot of companies don't look at, but you, you kind of really need to. And that's where there are hypotheses you can't see because your expertise as a CEO or a subject matter expert or whatever, literally tunnel visions you, you can't see outside that. So you start using abductive reasoning, which is your nil hypothesis scenario with Pareto curves and it all gets very boring. So I'm not gonna go too much into that. Um, but there are two other things that you need really for innovation to kind of occur, especially in times of crisis where we are at the moment. So the first of these is agility. And you can argue that agility isn't the same as agile. You can go and argue that with Alistair Coburn. Last time I spoke to him, he said that the same thing. He kind of was one of the people who wrote the manifesto. So I'm going I'm to go with what he said. Um, and agility requires three things. OK, you have the ability to change, to repurpose and to respond or uh, in, in kind of um, complexity speak, um, you've got adapt, exact, which is a radical repurposing of what you already have, and react. Now, it's important to note that a reaction is reflexive usually and a response is a choice, but for the purposes of this, they're more or less the same. The environment is giving you affordances and then you change depending on those, right? Adapt, exact, and react. But then on the other side, the thing that is required for innovation really is resilience as well. If you don't come up with anything new, if you don't have resilience to new ideas and new ways of doing things, 
you're not going to innovate. It's just not going to happen. And innovation can be as simple as finding a way for your company to survive during the pandemic, right? It doesn't have to be a new product, right? So you've got um, thinking innovation as well and, and cultural innovation. And resilience also requires three things, okay? You've got the ability to detect weak signals, which comes into the orthodoxies and stuff, which I can talk about another time. Um, and if you do find failure, you can't avoid it. You then have the second, which is the ability to uh, recover quickly from whatever failure you've experienced, which leads to the third, hopefully, which is the ability to quickly exploit the new paradigm, which is where innovation starts coming back into it. And that's where you get this survival of the luckiest effect rather than the fittest, where you get these serendipitous innovations like superglue, which I'm not going to go into the backstory now, but superglue was first designed for you know, gun sites in World War II, then for acrylic uh, canopies on planes. And somebody eventually went, why the hell aren't we just using this stuff to stick things together? It's clearly very good at this, right? So having agility and resilience and the ability to, and I, I don't, I think pivot gets overused a bit, but the ability to do so, I think is really important. Um, and I'm not going to go for much longer, but the, the, the core of innovation, I think, is I, I want to kind of go to that even a step further backwards. This is a, a Mindset isn't a word I, I like, but it's an ideal, right? It's a way of doing things. It's not just, it's like agility is a way of doing things, not uh, something you install. It's discovery, it's the new, it's the going early, it's inspiration. You know, it's not even doing things for recognition, but it's new ways for a, a number of things, right? Applicable ways. So the last thing I would kind of say is, you know, for, for innovation to take place within your company, within your personal life, Sometimes it's a good idea to listen to mavericks, heretics, you know, outliers, people like me uh, who stick out in a normal ordered company in operations teams and whatever. I fit better into missions, maybe product teams. Um, people who, who don't fit in but process things differently, think laterally, come up with new ways, and new ideas of doing things. Um, and so if you want innovation, you know, that there it is. Look to people who do things differently. Um, you've got to be different to innovate, right? You're not gonna get it. And that, that's why I'm very passionate about innovation and helping companies and people find it. So hopefully that's been useful um, and you can kind of, uh, this will be released soon on social media, this um, 3D representation of Kinevin. So you can have a study of it and see where you think innovation would fit into a domain for you. And I'll finish there. Christopher, thank you very much indeed. Um, you're certainly correct. Um, anyone who rocks a Christmas jumper with Star Wars on the front will certainly stick out in any organisation. So fair play. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> thank you very much for your talk. That was excellent. Straight Welcome. over to Lizzie Morris, who is actually joining us from Texas. So Lizzie, welcome and over to you. Thank you. So everybody, Happy New Year. And I'm kind of excited about the idea of talking today because what was interesting is when I thought about what I was going to talk about, it kind of came after I'd finished um, a talk on Clubhouse, which is this fabulous platform. It's kind of for us old heads. It's like MySpace meets Facebook in just audio. Right? So it's just like live podcasts of talking to people all over the world from different sets. And I just popped out of my uh, room there and it hit me that the thing we need, I mean, absolutely, absolutely need to have 
to make this whole thing worthwhile doing 2021 is going to be courage. And when we talk about innovation, for real innovation to happen, like real innovation, not like fake innovation, but real innovation is going to take the human component, right? So we can be as techie as we want to be, and we tend to be hardcore techie, right, in our space. But if we miss the human component, we're never going to have anything launch and be successful because it takes the humans to embrace courage for innovation to begin to happen. So I want to challenge you with the word itself, right? Let's just kind of play with the word and see what kind of comes to bear with it. Right. So if we look at, oh, let me plop this out now. If we look at the word courage by itself and we just kind of concentrate for a second on the letter C, there's a couple of things that come to mind. Right. So, for instance, connect. If we're going to work together to create innovation, because innovation is not going to just come out of me and it's not just going to come out of you. It's going to take connections before we can have any meaningful collaboration. We've got to be able to connect with each other. And when we connect, we've got to make sure the people we're connecting with and with the space that we're giving the connection is a space for people to show up as themselves. Because if I don't show up as myself, my creativity won't flow. And you need my creativity to make innovation happen. So connection is really important to make that collaboration happen. The other thing that we've got to be willing to do and to do well is to communicate. And I want to challenge us to communicate cold. What do I mean by communicate cold? Like be willing to just say it. Because if we don't just say it, we're not going to get any feedback and we won't know where it could possibly go. So if we're guarding everything and we're not allowing ourselves to be open, we're going to mess up the actual seeds of innovation that will come from these connections based on communication. Because here's the thing, I'm not aware of anybody in any of the teams who are actually psychic. Now, if you happen to have some psychic members on your team, then awesome for you. I just haven't met any. So since we don't have any psychic abilities, communication is the only way for us to make sure our intention and expectations are known. When we look at what Amy talked about, products, we can't assume what people want. we got to have a conversation, right? So we get some kind of confirmation about what people are thinking and what people are desiring. So we've got to be willing to get out and start doing the O, right? So when we look at the O, we're talking first, of course, openness. But openness with an objective, a strategy behind it. You're wanting to be open because you're keeping yourself focused on outcome. Outcome will help you to stay open-hearted and open-minded. Now, why do I say you got to be open-hearted? Because you're dealing with humans. And all of us have not evolved to the place where we can turn off our feelings. And why would you want to? Because your feelings give you some ideas and triggers of where you're at. The stories you have in your head about your counterparts, are they really real? Probably not. But if you're not open-hearted and having open communication, you're not going to stop having these crazy biases that keep talking in your head. If you want to have true innovation happen, open-heartedness is necessary. Being willing to say, I'm sorry, I didn't mean it that way. And explain where you're coming from because nobody will know your intention if you don't communicate it.
Now, the other thing you've got to be willing to be is overjoyed. I do the stuff that's going to make you really happy. If you hate what you're bloody doing, why keep doing it? Life is just way too short. So if you're in a job and you loathe it, start looking for your next one so you can have some joy. Why make yourself ill? Life is too short. Screw the overture, okay? Forget all about what everybody says it's supposed to be and find the thing that is resonating with your heart. That takes courage. Now, let's go to this you. What's this you about? When I'm thinking about it, I'm thinking about unity, right? And unity is kind of like one of those things you hear in rap songs, right? And songs about making love. But that's what teams have got to do, literally be able to come together like that and unify amidst our uniqueness. That's the beauty of true collaboration is me bringing my unique craziness to the table and you bringing your element of crazy and us coming together and still forming unity because we have consensus when we form unity. I recognize your differences. I respect them. And I am going to reflect on myself to make sure that when I come to collaborate with you, I don't create collisions. I create creativity. And these are the things that we want to do if we want to have courage. So if we go on and we look at the other letter that's kind of sitting there is the A. Attention, people. We're going to have to give attention to this stuff and we're going to have to take action. Enough talk, talk, talk. Right. Let's do some of this stuff. Let's make this stuff happen. Let's willing to take actions and let's affirm each other. Right. Acknowledge the fact I'm in the room. Acknowledge the fact I have ideas and acknowledge my ideas may be that secret sauce that we need to take our product to that whole next level. And then let's get to the G. Right. And when we look about the G, let's be gracious with each other. And let's show gratitude. Let people know that, you know, I'm happy you showed up. I'm grateful for the fact that you're still choosing to be part of this team in the crazy that's happening around our world. If you do that, I might start to get excited about coming to work. And I might be willing to extend myself even when I'm experiencing doubts and pains and uncertainty. Because if I extend myself, guess what? Now, all of us extending ourselves together create a breadth of reach. And this breadth allows my skills, your skills, their skills, all of them to connect to create this wonderful innovation that is seeded by the humanity all of us bring to the table. So, I dare you to take courage and make it real, even when you don't feel like you can do it and you don't think you can do it. That's when you need courage, right? Because courage is not saying that you got it down. Courage is saying that you're willing to take an action to make something happen. No innovation came from pure conversation. It came from people taking actions and being willing to fail. There's a fabulous saying that Maya Angelou has. She says, there is no greater agony than bearing an untold story inside of you. It's important to let people know where you're coming from. Tell your team your story so you become human, right? 
forget the cloak and overture of professionalism. Let's just bring ourselves to the table. Professionalism has to be redefined because it doesn't work anymore. Because now you got kids in the background, you got older people in the background, you got noise, and you still got to be able to innovate and collaborate in the midst of that. We're in a new space. It's a new day. And it's going to take courage to truly launch real innovation. Look forward to connecting with you guys on LinkedIn or social media. You can reach me at Your Agile Lady. I will DM you back if you reach out to me. Thank you. Lizzie, thank you very much. Absolutely love your talk. Such energy and passion. Um, you've spoken with us before and uh, yeah, absolutely fantastic. Thank you very much. Okay, um, without any delay, we have Colin Deedy up next. Colin, over to you. Cheers, just quickly share my screen. So... Cool, hopefully the slide deck's now showing okay. I pressed the wrong button, but hopefully that's sorted. Right, I, <clears throat> crikey, I love talks like this. I love what I'm hearing. I love listening into things like this. You know, I'd, I'd love to go to more of these more often, definitely. I wanna be a bit of a naysayer in a room or perhaps somebody who's saying, you know what, I've got a bit of a problem with innovation or rather I've got a particular problem with a particular type of innovation. And I'm talking about agile teams and I'm very specifically talking about agile consultants. And I suppose even within that subset, I'm very specifically talking about some type of agile consultant. Now, I should point out here that my objective at the end of this is that you should go out and hire yourself a, a barista from a coffee shop to work with your teams and never hire yourself an agile consultant. I say that only half tongue in cheek, by the way, and I appreciate I'm actually an agile consultant by trade, so I'm potentially doing myself out of a job here. So we'll see how this goes. Okay, so why innovate? What are we trying to do? What are we trying to achieve when we say innovate with an agile team or with a team? You know, I've got a team, we're currently delivering products or we're delivering service or we're doing one-off pieces of bespoke work, whatever it is, it kind of doesn't matter. And we are looking to become better. Well, better at what and for what reason? And the problem I see over and over again in the industry, and it's starting to become a bit like nails down blackboard, unfortunately, is that agile consultants and an entire industry of agile is essentially saying, be more agile. You should be more agile. What are you doing today? Oh, you're doing that. That's wrong. Be more agile. You're the most agile person on the planet. That's not good enough. Be more agile. The idea is wherever you are, you should be more agile. If you're water, using waterfall methods, you should use agile methods. If you're using agile, you perhaps you should be using lean or continuous delivery, etc., etc. Everyone should be more agile. Well, why? Why would we need to be more agile? And when I hear this, when I hear an agile consultancy or an agile consultant, and this happens over and over again, and I've heard people say this at conferences, you know, the goal of agile is to be more agile. And I'm like, oh, crikey, that's a recursive argument. It sounds like the Matrix to me. It sounds like the Merovingian from the Matrix who has this great st statement, why is the only real social power? Without it, you are powerless. And this is how you come to me without why, without power. So if we turn around to a team, especially, you know, if I, I, I've got lots of, lots of teams who work for me at the moment and previously, if I had ever turned around to them and said, whatever you're doing now, it's wrong. You need to be more agile. Uh, you need to do scrum. Uh, they would say, why? And if I say, well, the corporate process says so, or the agile consultant we've hired and nicely polished and put in a big pedestal in the corner, you know, this person, the agile consultant says, be more agile, then 
there is a lack of why, there is a lack of reason behind that, essentially. Now, I want to clarify what I mean by this. I want to use an example of a coffee shop, and I mentioned a barista earlier. Coffee shops are amazing. They are possibly the, the most agile, a well-run coffee shop, that is, the most agile, the leanest place you will find on the planet. If you look at how a coffee shop is organised to draw you in, to demonstrate immediately three things. One, this is a place you can get value, in brackets, coffee. Two, we will give you that value quickly, in brackets, more coffee. And three, we can upsell you a cake or two. Coffee shops are organised to deliver service, to deliver that value to the customer rapidly. When we look at a coffee shop and how it's organised, what we're really talking about is it's part of the lean supply chain. It's rapidly delivering value to customers. Everything I've circled there is an element of that. There's a well-defined menu. And just because I wanted this, this thing to point left and right, I've had to flip this around slightly. So I appreciate that's in, in reverse. But anyway, there's a well-defined menu. There's a coffee machine. It's set up. Everything's laid out in order. You will get your coffee quickly from this coffee shop. There are messages that are being given direct and indirect to you. But let's compare it to what an Agile consultant might turn around and say, and, and I have a real problem with this. A lot of Agile consultancies, and, and it's almost a test really, it's how long before your Agile consultant turns down to you and says, Agile equals Scrum. Now, I heard this just the other day, actually, and I, I, I was just really gobsmacked. Yeah, they, they said this Agile consultancy was uh, offering some training to a colleague of mine, and uh, I, was, I was just listening into something. And it ba they basically said, right, what we're going to do is we're going to go through an introduction of who we are. Then we're going to talk about the differences between waterfall and agile. And then we're going to tell you what Scrum is. And I'm like, well, hang on a minute. We're immediately talking about methods. We're talking about how we do something, the how, without the why. Going back to the matrix example in Merovingian, we're coming without a why. We're discussing and talking about how we do things without understanding and discovering the value for our customer. What is our customer after? The why is the what of the customer. What does the customer want us to achieve? This why is incredibly important. And if we compare it to a coffee shop, we see something very interesting. What is the goal of the coffee shop? What is the why of a coffee shop? Well, it's, it's kind of in the question, isn't it? You know, the clue is in the question, the word coffee. You get, you know, coffee shops are so well organised that I will happily pay three pounds or more for what is essentially a bit of brown powder and water and milk swirled in a mug. You know, I mean, how amazing is that in terms of value and creating a value proposition that I will buy into? Now, I use a technique. I, can, I use this technique um, uh, quite a lot, lot, and I call it notter. So I look at things and I say, well, not a barista. The goal of our coffee shop is to enable us to work effectively in the coffee shop. Well, clearly that's not the goal of a coffee shop. That's not the goal of a barista. Yeah, you, you know, we, the goal is to deliver value, deliver coffee, deliver that upsell of cakes. So we can apply this to agile consultancies as well. Not an agile consultant. The goal of our team is to work effectively as a team. The goal of our team is to do scrum or because I do not ever want to be accused of bashing Scrum, the goal of our team is to do Kanban or insert practice method here, X here, etc. What's very key though, is when we look at what a barista actually does in a coffee shop, is that the goal of their coffee shop is to sell you that coffee, is to deliver you that value and you know upsell a cake or two. So the goal of an agile consultancy 
should also be to help us understand and discover ways to deliver those valuable solutions to our customers, to our clients, and in brackets, upsell a change request or two. Why not? Yeah. Now, when I rephrase this, I think of it in these terms. A barista in a coffee shop practices, whoops, my video's disappeared. Let's see if that reappears. I have no idea why my video just died. Anyway, a goal of a barista in a coffee shop what they're actually trying to do is they're practicing making and delivering delicious coffee. An agilist, uh, an agile practitioner, an agile consultancy that's helping a team, we're helping that team to learn and discover the practice of making and delivering delicious software, something that the customer values. And if we're talking about value, clearly what we must be including within that is the agile way of working. It must be value focused. <clears throat> If your agile way of working does not include a focus on customer value, you're not agile. I kind of, I'm done now with this kind of agile versus lean, et cetera, kind of thing. And, uh, you know, and I appreciate differences between, you know, different methods, different practices, different approaches. But fundamentally from now onwards, if we're not talking about the value that we plan to deliver, if we're not looking at discovering value or discovering an opportunity for future value, that's it, you're not agile. I don't care what method is being used because what you're producing has no end value. It has no end delivery. It is no, not able to deliver that delicious cake, that delicious solution. So why innovate? Well, we need to discover and deliver more valuable outcomes. You know, nice buzzword sentence, but it maps back very nicely to the Agile Manifesto. People seem to forget this, the highest priority, not somewhere in the middle, but right at the top, the highest priority is the satisfaction of that customer. And the customer defines how they will be satisfied by the value that we deliver. And that of course is the innovation. So why are we innovating is the value. How do we innovate? Well, we need to innovate with simplicity. We need to leanify our way of working. We need to pick and mix our agile methodologies and we need to find simplicity in the way that we do so. And interestingly, you can hire a barista to do this. I'm actually starting to convince myself genuinely to go into my nearest coffee shop and hire the person who works there to come in and act as an advisor to my agile teams when I see the amazing ways that coffee shops have solved these kind of problems and deliver value. Because true innovation is when we're delivering incredible value, perhaps maximal value, but incredible value for the minimal expenditure of effort, whether that's people or investigations or whatever it might be. It's certainly not the maximal volume for uncertain value. We need to be finding value in our innovation and we need to be delivering it. Thank you very much. Colin, thank you very much. Uh, that was fantastic. And I especially loved the nod to one of the greatest film trilogies of all time. Uh, in the matrix. Uh, love those. Thank you very much, Colin. Okay, so straight over to uh, Gweno Half-Hughes. She's joining us from South Wales. Gweno, over to you. Thank you, Alex. Uh, and thank you, everyone that's spoken so far. I have no idea how I'm going to follow up such a great lineup, but I'll give it a go. Uh, okay, so thank you uh, very much. And this evening I'm going to talk about, well, to be honest with you, I'm not quite sure what I'm going to talk about yet. It's TBD to be decided. But first things first, nice to meet you all. Before we go any further, I'd like to introduce myself. My name is Gwen. I'm an agile team lead at a company called Zappi. 
if you can't quite place it, my accent is from a place called Anglesey in North Wales. And finally, a fun fact uh, about me, just to break the ice, I once beat a geisha at her very own drinking game. Uh, and if you don't believe me, here is some photographic evidence. If you only learn one thing from me this evening, let it be that you should never challenge a Welsh person to a drinking game. Moving swiftly on, before we dive in any further, I wanted to tell you just a little bit about Zappi, which is the company I work for. So Zappi is an ad and innovation testing platform built by brands for brands. So we operate within the market research space. We employ around 200 people worldwide, 80 of those uh, working in our technology department. Uh, we have a dynamic organizational structure, so we don't quite have a flat structure, but we don't have a very traditional corporate structure either, especially so in the technology side of the business. This photo in the bottom here is of the Zappi team taken in Crete in 2018 during our last company days away. I will give you a tenner if you can spot me in the crowd. Okay, I've given you some background information, so it's time to dive into my innovation theme talk. And I spent a lot of time over Christmas thinking about innovation, what I could chat to you all about tonight and how I could even innovate the talk itself. And then it hit me. I've actually prepared two talks and I'm gonna let you, the audience, decide which one you want to hear this evening. So I'm going to share a link to a tool called Mentimeter in the chat. Uh, if you could do me a favor and hop onto Mentimeter, you have two options this evening. Option one, innovating the feedback process in Zappi, and option two, innovating the Scrum Master role in Zappi. I'll give you just under 30 seconds to vote. Hopefully, you've all accessed Menti. I can see some votes coming in now. Uh, so please vote. Okay, so the votes are in uh, and it wasn't as close as expecting it to be. Uh, so uh, now, oh, wait, there's some more votes coming in. Oh God, this, this is tense. It's like the US presidential election. Um, okay, so let me find and jump to my slide. As you can see, I did prepare two talks. I'm not just lying to you. Uh, here we go. Okay, so hopefully you can still see my slides. Thank you all for voting there. Uh, innovating the Scrum Master role in Zappi. So I'm not gonna lie to you, this was my least favorite of the two topics, but like they say, nothing grows in the comfort zone, so I'll forgive you and I'll do my best. To kick off, let us first take a quick look at the traditional definition of the Scrum Master role. Uh, here we go. This is a quote from the most recent Scrum Guide released in November last year, but not much has changed since the last version. I won't read it all as I'm sure that the majority of everyone here is more than familiar with the role of Scrum Master. But just to pick out a couple of important points, the Scrum Master is accountable for establishing Scrum as defined in the Scrum Guide, and the Scrum Master is accountable for the Scrum team's effectiveness. So now I hope that we're all on the same page as to what a traditional Scrum Master role should look like. But all of that, well, it didn't really look a lot like what we call the Scrum Master in Zappi. So let's take a look at some of the things that we were doing as Scrum Masters in Zappi back in January 2020 that were outside the scope of a traditional Scrum Master. Before I start, just keep in mind that this is not an exhaustive list. Firstly, let's take a look at the numbers. So as I said earlier, Zappi is made of 200 employees worldwide. 
Um, there are eight in our tech department. Those eight are split up into around 10 teams. Uh, and those 10 teams were then supported by two pure Scrum Masters. When I say pure, what I mean is someone operating only in a Scrum Master capacity and two Scrum Masters who were also working as developers within their teams. So 10 teams, four Scrum Masters, and I was personally a Scrum Master for three concurrent teams up until late last year. While this approach isn't strictly mentioned as either a good thing or a bad thing or mentioned at all with regards to the Scrum Guide, it does fall outside the scope of what I would call a traditional Scrum Master. Secondly, implementing other frameworks in addition to Scrum. So as Colin was mentioning earlier, we don't just pick Scrum because Scrum is agile. Uh, some of the Scrum Masters were working with other frameworks. For example, two of my teams were working purely in Kanban and other Scrum, Scrum Masters were working with a team doing a hybrid of both Scrum and Kanban. So there was a risk that soon some Scrum Masters wouldn't even be working with Scrum at all. Finally, attempting to work, oh, my uh, points are late, there you go. Attempting to work, uh, attempting to focus on wider initiatives. As a part of the role, we also try to focus on helping the wider business on a range of different initiatives completely outside the scope of Scrum, from improving facilitation across the board, to having a helping hand in innovating the feedback process, to improving ways of working. I'd like to also quickly gloss over how we as a function of Scrum Masters worked. So we were very much a working group of individuals. We'd come together every other week for about 30 minutes to an hour to share any information we thought was relevant or to ask an opinion on various issues. But truthfully, we'd struggle to find things to talk about sometimes. We had little to no visibility in how other Scrum, Scrum Masters and Scrum teams worked. Despite the alignment meetings we were having, we were very much working in our own bubbles and we were independent of one another. And despite the fact that we did try to work with other initiatives in the wider business, we'd struggle to get traction within the Scrum Master team and any progress we did wasn't massively impactful and took ages to have any real effect. Oh, fireworks. Uh, then at the start of last year, we decided we wanted things to change. I, for one, was getting rather frustrated at how disjointed we were. Our alignment meetings in particular was a point of contention for me as they were starting to feel like they were a waste of time. I missed the support bubble that working closely with other Scrum Masters would provide. And things did change. I guess the question is, how? Firstly, I went off and I interviewed around dozen key people in tech who had an opinion on the Scrum Master role or who would be impacted by any changes. I wanted to know what they thought of the Scrum Master role in Zappi, what we were doing well, where we were failing, what the ideal Scrum Master would look like for them, and I compiled a, a report of sorts for their findings. The report was hugely insightful, but the main takeaway for me was how unimportant they all felt Scrum itself was to the role. There was, however, alignment in how important being an overall process and framework expert was. Based on my findings, we then decided to revisit the job spec and update it taking into account that we were now a mixture of both pure Scrum Masters and developer slash Scrum Masters. We then decided to, <gasps> shock horror, change our names because the job spec no longer felt like a job spec for a Scrum Master. And because Scrum was now only a small piece of what was expected of us, it seemed wrong to call ourselves Scrum Masters. We explored a few different options from Vibe Controller, yes, really, I'm not lying to you, to Flow Master before settling on Agile Team Lead, which you would have heard me introduce myself as before. 
we then created a team charter. This was more for us than for anything else, but we wanted something that we could look to for guidance, a reminder on what we were trying to achieve and why it was important for us. We then decided in Q2 of last year to set ourselves some OKRs, something that would force us to work together, something that we could use to hold ourselves to account, and something that would force us to get something done by a certain date. This has been very successful and we smashed both our Q2 and Q3 OKRs. A Q4 ones, not quite as well, but we were overshooting quite a bit. We also started an agile community of practice where we get together after our alignment meeting every other week and share knowledge that relates to agile, process, ways of working. Something that forces us to keep improving, keep learning and sharing information. We also have an informal catch-up every other week, which I regrettably named a honky-tonk in a moment of madness. Uh, the purpose of this session is for us to get to know one another a bit more and strengthen our bonds as a team. We've also started having weekly stand-ups in which we share with the group our main focuses for the week with regard to Agile. This allows us to better understand one another's workloads and also see opportunities where we can help one another out. Innovation complete. Well, maybe not complete as it's still an ongoing progress, but hopefully I've made it clear how we took a traditional Scrum Master role, which had been unchanged and largely unsuccessful for many years and transformed it into something new that is making a positive difference. As I mentioned, the innovation isn't quite over as we have many plans as how to take things to the next level. Those plans include our aim of becoming a high performing team, as I mentioned previously, we were very much a working group of individuals. Now we're on our way to becoming a real team with hopes of becoming a high performing team soon. Horizons planning. We just started doing some horizons planning before the festive break, and I'm thrilled that we now have, have foresight to look so far ahead. To aid that and our overall mission, we're planning an offsite at the end of the quarter. Of course, when I say offsite, I mean I'll probably sit in a different room that day. Uh, and there may be a possible restructure coming up along with the introduction of the Agile Coach role into Zappi. And there you have it, how we innovated the Scrum Master role in Zappi. I hope I've given you some ideas of what you can try in your organization, regardless of your role. And I'm sure there's a, there's a way somewhere to innovate it. Thank you very much. Gwen, thank you so much. Uh, that was fantastic and I absolutely loved the uh, countdown music um, at the beginning. Very, very agile to uh, allow our community to choose which talk they want. So that was fantastic. Thank you. Okay, our final talk of this evening is Shane Hasty. He's joining us from New Zealand and has spoken with us before. Uh, Shane, over to you. Thanks, Alex. Thank you very much, folks. And hopefully, if that's working properly, you can see my screen. Uh, what I thought I'd talk about is the no projects, uh, hash no projects as, a, as a, an element of innovation in terms somewhat of, of our ways of working. Um, <clears throat> so first, perhaps a definition. What do Evan and I mean when we came up with the, with the, the term no projects? the alignment of activities to outcomes measured by value, constrained by guiding, guiding principles and supported by continuous delivery technologies. And that continuous is the key element, uh, irrespective of the type of technology you may be using. In, in information technology and software development, we've got the CI, CD tooling, but it's more than that. It's what is 
continuous marketing looked like? It is what does continuous finance look like? How do we move from the annual budgeting cycle to continuous flow budgeting? For instance, if your domain is, um, is finance. So looking at the, the ideas here and the, this uh, infographic uh, distills the essence of the difference. One of the, the reasons we came up with this is projects as a delivery model in information and knowledge work environments is fundamentally broken. Uh, projects get in the way, not just of innovation, but of actually delivering real value for our organizations. The Where projects came from is civil engineering. And if you're working in, in using the, um, the simple space from, complex, uh, from Kinevan or one of the complexity models, if you're looking, if you are working in that uh, cause effect, uh, simple predictive environment, then the science of project management that comes out of civil engineering makes sense. Also, when you look at the situation in that space where you build something or a group of people build something and then they hand it on to another group who will maintain it, look after it, use it, own it, etc. Whether we're talking about roads, if we're talking about houses and buildings and so forth. In, in that context, the project structures make sense. But if we think about the uh, knowledge worker environments where most of the value in today's economy sits, the concept of one group of people delivering, building something, and another group of people then maintaining that going forward uh, totally gets in the way of value delivery because the incentives are fundamentally broken. Um, and we see this in terms of the of the metrics that we that we look at the the time cost scope value is almost never a consideration in that project environment moving on the on the other hand to metrics that matter the the concept of the product being that or the value stream being the place where value is delivered versus the project being the, the, the end of the project is there is a thing. Um, projects measure outcomes, projects produce, uh, sorry, produce outputs. Organizations need to focus on, on outcomes. And we've, we've seen this a couple of times in, in the conversation this evening, the, the importance of outcomes over outputs. Not, it doesn't matter how much you produce, if what we're producing is fundamentally the wrong thing. And a lot of projects do this. There's, there's metrics that say somewhere around 68% of projects are uh, either failed or challenged, lovely word, over time, over, over budget, under featured, not delivering the business benefits they are funded for. Um, one of the, the other big shifts that we, we recommend is uh, moving from what does it cost to what's it worth? What is the value that we're going to, to generate? And is the, the cost involved in producing that value worthwhile? Um, the moving from that, that temporary team concept to 
stable teams. Now, stable does not mean the same people continually forever. Uh, Reteaming is an important part of that, the evolution of teams over time. And I would point you there to think, to work by, for instance, Heidi Hefland on dynamic reteaming. But that, that stability in knowledge over time rather than the pull a group of people together, keep them together just long enough to be, start becoming a high-performing team and then disband them. Maintain that that team as a constant thing, but with an evolution over, the, uh, over time. The moving from build accountability to cradle to grave accountability. So that, that the idea that we produce this thing and we pass it over, versus we the, uh, the 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 mantra of you build it you run it if you're if you taking the software example again if you're the person who's going to be woken up at 2 a.m when there is a production failure you're likely to take more care to make sure that doesn't happen to you and the incentives there and the Ownership of business outcomes versus the allocation of tasks by a defined role, whether that's the project manager or a team lead or, or whatever. Um, and we heard we heard about flatter structures uh, at at Zappy as uh, one example of this, Remo removing a lot of the hierarchies, making things. Uh, giving the team that ownership of outcomes. So no projects, innovation in ways of thinking about work and then ways of working. That is, uh, organization structures do need to, to become adaptive and adaptable. Uh, it's designed to work well in the complex and chaotic environments so from the Kinevenin situation. It does require courage. And uh, most teams that I'm aware of could do with a barista. So I hope I've managed to bring everything together from, from all of the talks. And given that we are slightly over time, I'll just point you to, there is a book. Um, the book is called Hash No Projects. It's available as a free download from InfoQ. Uh, if you do want the dead tree version, you can get that from Amazon. And uh, for that one, we actually get some money. So, Alex, thank you very much. Thank you, Shane. Uh, love that. And thank you for bringing all of the, uh, being the glue and bringing all the talks together. Um, so be sure everyone to go and uh, purchase uh, Shane's book there. So I'd just like to say a massive thank you to Amy, Christopher, Lizzie, Colin, Gwen and Shane for their talks tonight. Um, thank you to everyone for joining us from all over the world, um, speakers and audience alike. Um, as I say, you know, um, my name's Alex. Uh, I've been running these events since the beginning of the, the pandemic in March. Um, we're getting continued interest in these I just want to say thank you so much for everyone for joining us and thank you again to the speakers. I thought it was a fantastic Super 6 event tonight. If you are looking for work or you are looking to hire within the technology space, do reach out. My name is Alex Scriven, pretty easy to find on LinkedIn. This Agile London event is something I'm going to keep going and Product London will get off the ground again in 2021. So 
be sure to look out for that. Once again, thank you to the speakers. Be sure you do reach out to them on LinkedIn um, and continue conversations from there. We are back. Our next event is on the 20th and more details will be up uh, quite soon. So keep an eye out on Meetup for that. But all that's left to say is thank you so much again to, to the speakers and everyone for joining us. And I wish you a lovely evening. See you later.